Our topic this morning is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the uh, Trinity. And uh, I've given you a copy of the paragraph in our doctrinal statement that describes our belief about the Holy Spirit. It's certainly not uh, complete and uh, definitive in any sense of the word, but uh, gives us the an outline to work with. We believe that the Holy Spirit is a divine person sent to indwell, guide, teach, empower the believer, and convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And underneath the Apostles' Creed, the earliest creed that we have any knowledge of from the church, and uh, the simple statement uh, in the next to, to the last line, I believe in the Holy Ghost. It's a difficult subject to talk on, and the passage I've chosen to teach on this morning is very difficult. There are probably as many interpretations as there are uh, interpreters, and one of the uh, one of the most great ironies of life, I walked in this morning, announced my text, and looked over to my right, and seated uh, over there was Dr. Bob Gundry, who is probably the leading New Testament theologian today, the, the one of whom there is no humor in uh, theological circles. And I felt this sudden panic. I thought, oh my goodness, what, you know, what in the world am I going to do with this passage? <laughs> and afterwards it came up and his comment was, I appreciated that, which is about as non-committal as anybody can, can be. <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit is the unknown member of the, of the Trinity, the uh, unsung hero of the Godhead. And uh, difficult to describe, particularly in terms of his person. We can talk about what he does, but it's, it's difficult to define who he is. He is certainly God, no question about that. But as God the Holy Spirit, his person is not spelled out for us uh, to any great degree in, in Scripture. Um, Jesus described him as being like the wind, which is probably a, a, as apt a metaphor as, as we can uncover. You know the story. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and uh, came to, uh, to check his credentials. His statement, we know that you're a teacher come from God, had behind it the implied question, are you the teacher, the Messiah of, of Israel? And uh, Jesus turned the tables on Nicodemus somewhat. He, he said, to, in effect, he began to, to look at his credentials. Uh, he says, uh, again, implying a question, uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of heaven. And the question implied was this, have you been born again? You, you're asking, am I the king of Israel? I would like to know if you're in the kingdom. Have you been born again? And Nicodemus, of course, was nonplussed. He didn't know how to react to that uh, statement. And he said, what, what does this mean? Do I have to go back through the process of gestation and, and birth and maturation again and, and wear three-cornered pants and become a child? What, what does this mean? And uh, Jesus says, well, we're not talking about a natural birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It can rise no higher than, than the flesh our basic humanity. But uh, there has to be another birth of spirit. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't uh, marvel that he said to you, I, you must be born again. And then he begins to describe the spirit's activity like wind. The wind blows where it will, he says. That is, it's sovereign. You can't stop the wind from blowing. 
And uh, you don't know where it's come, coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, the, the process by which the new birth occurs is unexplainable. It's like the wind, inexplicable. But, he says, it's not unattainable. We can't understand it, but we can attain it. And then he explains, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, the way to be born again is to believe in Jesus. It's just that simple. And the Spirit of God will change your heart. He'll give you a new life, an eternal quality of life. Now, that's the way Jesus approached the subject of uh, the Holy Spirit. He said uh, he, he does things. He changes people. He changes lives. He changes hearts. He gives new life. But his activity is, is mysterious. It, it, it's difficult to pin down. It's like the wind. Now, uh, turn with me to John 16, where we see some further teaching of Jesus concerning the Holy Spirit. Three ministries that characterize uh, the Spirit when he came, which are to be manifest within the church and through the church. Uh, The chapters... 13 through 17 of John all have to do with the upper room discourse, that is, or pardon me, through 16, 13 through 16 have to do with the upper room discourse. Jesus teaching in the upper room just prior to his his death, within a matter of hours, he was taken out for trial and, and ultimately crucified. So these are his last words, something in the nature of a last will and testament that he left behind for the apostles. And he begins by assuring him that, uh, that if things are tough, the apostles ought to cheer up because they're going to get tougher. Uh, These things, he says in verse 1, I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. This will keep you from falling down, from making a fool of yourself. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, and an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. He said, you can expect mistreatment, you can expect to be maligned and misunderstood and cast out of the synagogues and, and slandered, and uh, furthermore, they'll kill you. But uh, this, this is instruction for you to remember when things get tough. When the going gets tough, this is truth that will teach you to be tough and to get going. That's what Jesus is saying. And it applies to the apostles, and it applies to us. This is truth for us when we roll out of the sack in the morning and and the day looks grim and bitter and dark and you wonder how in the world you're going to make it through. You have to face your grouchy husband in the kitchen and and the children are climbing the walls and and you don't have a job and you don't know what you're going to do and you can't pay the bills and your marriage is on the rocks and your your life seems to be falling down around you. This This is information that will keep you from stumbling. From falling. Now, he goes on in verse 4, These things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, that is, those who kill you, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. There's a, a kind of ominous ring to those words, I was with you, implying that in some sense he's beginning to separate from the apostles. He's no longer with them in the sense that he was with them for the, the prior three and a half years. 
And now he says, I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They were paralyzed by grief, and they were unable to ask the crucial question, what is the significance of your going? They were just worried about themselves. You're going off and leaving us. And uh, they anticipated life without the Lord, and they knew it wouldn't be good. But they didn't ask the real question. Why are you going? Where are you going? What's the significance of your going? And Jesus tells him in verse 7, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's the significance of Jesus going. I'm going away, he says, but I'm sending the Helper. The word for uh, Helper here. Is a word that means someone who is called alongside to plead our cause, to take a stand with us, to, to help us through uh, through life, and therefore helper is a is a good translation of the term. He says, "I will send the helper to you." And then he tells these apostles gathered around uh, our Lord in this in this upper room what that helper will do. Um, He begins in verse 8 with the first characteristic or mark of his coming. And he, when he comes, pardon me, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe on me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. One ministry of the Spirit when he comes will be to convict the world, that is the world of of non-Christians, the world of unbelievers, of sin and righteousness and judgment. Three moral categories that that men and women are inclined to to overlook and, and dismiss. He will convict them of the gravity of the sin of, of unbelief, the reality or the objectivity of, of righteousness, because Jesus, the righteous standard, would be taken from their Uh, from their midst, and the certainty of judgment. First, the the nature of sin. He would convict them of sin because they do not believe on me. Do you know the, the, the only sin that God holds against the human race, the only sin that separates us from God is the sin of unbelief. Uh, it is not our sins. Smoking dope and getting drunk and telling lies and committing adultery, those sins do not separate you and me from God. That's not what separates the human race from him. The only sin of which God holds us accountable is the sin of unbelief, that we do not accept the remedy that Jesus Christ has made. As John puts it in his little epistle, Jesus is the satisfaction for all of our sins. Uh, he is the satisfaction for our sins, referring to the, to the church, to Christians. And not only of our sins, but of the sins of the whole world. When Christ died on the cross, he died for our sins. So those sins are not held against us. The only sin of which the Holy Spirit convicts the world is the sin of unbelief. They don't uh, believe in Jesus. 
That's the sin that Jesus described in Matthew 12 as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is not to murder or incest or, or any, any specific sin. It's uh, the sin of rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit to Christ. Now, that's the first area in which the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, the basic sin of unbelief in Christ. The second uh, uh, moral category, the second issue which he puts his, puts his finger on, is uh, uh, righteousness, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. When our Lord was here on the earth, he was, he was an absolute standard of righteousness. He never did anything wrong. He was always right. He always said what was right. He always did what was right and, and true. And, he, and by comparison, he showed up men's shabby lives. That's one of the reasons they put him to death. As I've said before, Jesus wasn't crucified because he told people to love one another. He was crucified for the th- things that he said and did. His life was so outstandingly pure. He was so righteous. He, uh, everyone else looked bad by comparison. He was one absolute objective standard of righteousness. If you want to know what was right, look at Jesus. Now Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father, and, and you will behold me no more. The Holy Spirit now takes over the function of Jesus' incarnate life here in that he, he puts his finger on this issue of righteousness. He shows all of us how far short we fall. From the glory of of God. And then third, he will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The ruler of this world is Satan. And uh, if the ruler of this world has been judged, how do we think we will escape, those of us who are citizens of of this world? So these are the the three issues, the three areas uh, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of of sin, of the sin of unbelief, of righteousness because we fall short of the standard of Christ's righteousness. And he convinces us that judgment is coming. You you don't have to tell people these things. They know. There is a prior witness in the heart of, of every man to the fact of sin, the sin of unbelief and righteousness and judgment, the fact that there is a comeuppance that's coming. We know it. That we are accountable. Someday we have to answer for the things that, that we have said and done. Now, earlier in chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus had told them that when the Helper comes, whom he says, I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. He's referring to the same, uh, the same ministry of the Spirit. And here says that that ministry is antecedent to ours. His witness comes before ours. Before you go to talk to a non-Christian friend about his relationship to Christ, the Spirit has gone before to prepare the heart. That's even true of people who don't seem to be interested, who on the outside appear indifferent. Uh, the Spirit has been working in their heart to convince them of the sin of 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 unbelief in Christ. They they know that Jesus is an extraordinary person and they can't get away from that and and there's that uneasiness at rejecting him finally and ultimately. They know. And uh, they know that they fall short of their own standard of righteousness, much less God's standard. And uh, they know that that a judgment is is coming.
Now, one of the marks of a spirit-filled church is that that church will have an impact upon the world around them. The Spirit of God will be convicting men and women of, of sin. And uh, that prior witness will be corroborated by our verbal witness, and people will be drawn into this assembly, this body, and others as we give witness to the, uh, to the truth. Now, that's the first ministry of the Spirit, that of convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The second uh, that he describes for us uh, and for the apostles here is uh, revelation. Not only conviction of the world, but he gives a revelation of the heart and mind of God to the church, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, I have many things to say to you, but uh, you can't bear them now. They were so grief-stricken they hadn't uh, heard what he said, and he knew it would be impossible to tell them more. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you, and I think here he's speaking specifically to the apostles. He will guide you, you eleven men that were gathered around the table. He will guide you into all the truth. You see the contrast. I have much to say. You're not able to bear it now. But the time is coming when the Spirit will reveal all the truth to you. For he will not speak on his own initiative. In other words, this revelation doesn't come from him. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose it. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things, that the, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is his ministry of, of giving revelation to, uh, to the church. The apostles were the representatives of the church. They were the foundation upon which the church was built. They had authority that no one else had. They were unique spokesmen for Jesus. They had, their words had the same authority as Jesus' words. And uh, that authority is derived from this promise. And what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit will take the things that are in God's mind and he'll reveal them to the apostles. And the apostles then will reveal them to the church. And uh, these words are essentially a glorification of, of Jesus. He will glorify me, Jesus says. Talking about the New Testament. The New Testament is nothing more or less than a glorification of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a promise that pertains to the apostles and the unique authority that they had to write scripture and predict the future. Uh, note that he says, he will show you things to come. That is, you will be able, as a result of these revelations, to predict the future. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament to uh, Deuteronomy 18, you'll discover there the, the, the criteria, the tests that were applied to a prophet. Uh, the question, uh, Moses said, will arise, uh, how will we know if someone is a spokesman from God? How can we detect the true from the false? Many false prophets are around. How will we know? Moses said three tests. Number one, that prophet must be a Jew. He must be one of your countrymen. Uh, it was to the Jews, to that nation, that the oracles of God were given, Paul says. Secondly, it must be someone who receives direct revelation. He gets his truth not from studying the Bible, but by direct revelation from God. And third, he must be able to predict the future with absolute accuracy. Never miss 
Not once. If he ever misses, then he's a false prophet. Now, the very same criteria are, can be applied here. These 11 men were all Jews. God was speaking through the nation of Israel again, through the select group of apostles. And they would receive direct revelation. The Holy Spirit would take the things that are in the mind of God and disclose it to these apostles. And uh, Jesus says you'll be able to, to proclaim things to come. You'll be able to predict the future, which would be the test, the way to authenticate your ministry. And for myself, I believe the fulfillment of this promise is found in the writing of the books of the New Testament. All the books that we have in our New Testament were written by these men or written under their authority. The only exceptions uh, of apostolic writings would be the books of uh, Luke and Acts, which were written by Luke, who, was, uh, who wrote under Paul's authority, and uh, the book of Mark that was written under Peter's authority. Now, there, there was one apostle that was added later who wasn't in this room, but uh, he had uh, the same experience, basically, that these apostles had. Because in describing his own life, he tells us that, uh, that what he received, he received not from the apostles, but from the Lord himself, just as they had received it. Now, this is what theologians call the biblical theory of knowledge. This is how we know God. This is how we know about him. The Holy Spirit takes the things that are in God's mind, reveal them to the apostles. The apostles wrote them down and inscripturated them. And uh, these words were addressed to the church. And so we have God's word in written form. Now, this is precisely the process that Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, I know this gets a little bit cumbersome, but stick with me, will you, for just a second. Next week, we're going to come back and talk more about Scripture and how we received it, the process itself. But just uh, as an introductory note, Paul is contrasting himself with the sages of the Greek world who had wisdom, natural wisdom, Paul says we have another kind of wisdom. In verse 6, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. And then in verse 10, he tells us how that wisdom uh, is transferred from the mind of God to the people of God. Verse 10, for to us, that is us apostles. Sometimes us means all of us, us guys. But, but in this context, it's the apostles for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. It's a very homely illustration, but, but it brings, uh, brings home the truth. Uh, can anyone here tell me what I'm thinking right now? No. You don't have any idea what I'm thinking. The only way you would know what I'm thinking is if I, I were to tell you. Now, the Spirit of God knows the mind of God, because He is God. And therefore, whatever God thinks, He knows, and He takes the thoughts of God, and He gives them to the apostles. That's what Paul means in verse 12, when he says, Now we, we apostles, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God. That we apostles might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we apostles speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, uh, the, the Spirit of God scanned through Paul's vocabulary and, and picked out the right word 
to convey the right thought that was in the mind of God. So that the words themselves accurately uh, describe the thoughts of God. And uh, then he says uh, in verse 14, the natural man, the man who doesn't love God, doesn't accept these things, their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is, is appraised or discerned by no one. When we have the mind of, of, of God, then we're able to make our way through life and make wise choices. The, the creator of the universe who understands life as no one else who made us and who understands us has revealed his thoughts so that we can make our way through life and be wise and astute and, uh, and act in gracious and godlike ways. He's done that for us. The whole process is described for us. The Holy Spirit takes the things in the mind of God, reveals them to the apostles. The apostles reveal them in words that we can understand and we can believe them. And as a matter of fact, Paul's, Paul, it, it reminds Paul of a passage in Isaiah 40, a question. Who has known the mind of God? Well, as a matter of fact, we have. We have the mind of Christ. We can discern. We can discern that, uh, that TV programs that, that uh, advocate teenage sex and the use of horoscopes are wrong. We can discern that it's wrong to tell a lie, even though it's to our advantage to tell a lie. These truths about life are revealed to us, Paul says, through the apostles. Uh, I hope you know this, this is not a religious book. I hope you understand that. This is not a book of uh, hymns and songs for worship on Sunday morning and prayers, like a book of common prayer although there's nothing wrong with that. This is a book that tells you how to live life by the God who invented the whole process, who understands us inside and out. And that's why the church loves this book. And that's why we, as members of the church, need to love it, need to read it, memorize it, and study it, and obey it. That's the second mark of a spirit-filled church, not only... Do we have an impact upon the world around us? But we know and love the word because we see it as a, as a revelation from the Spirit of God. Now, the, the third ministry of the Spirit is described for us back in John 16. Please turn back to John with me. I have ten minutes, so don't get restless. <clears throat> Verse 16. Jesus was so fond of making uh, enigmatic statements, using parables, and speaking in veiled ways. It wasn't because he was trying to obscure the truth, not at all. Jesus knew that people who really wanted truth would, would want to know the answers to these parables. And so he would, he would put a twist to a saying or put it in some obtuse way, and, and the disciples would say, What? What's that again? And they would be drawn into a deeper understanding of the truth. And that's precisely what he does in verse 16. After describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in, his, in, in Revelation, he says in verse 16, he seems to just go off in another tack. A little while and you will no longer behold me. Here he uses a word that means to be visible. Uh, I won't be visible any longer to the naked eye. 
And again, a little while, and you will see me. Here he use a, uh, uses a more ambiguous term that has the idea of perceiving or having insight. So he says to the disciples, in a little while, you'll no longer see me, but you'll see me. And they say, what? What's that again? And they start discussing among themselves what he's saying. And, and, and some of his disciples said to one another, well, what is this thing he's telling us? And uh, Jesus, in verse 19, knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, why are you deliberating together about this? Why are you asking one another? Why don't you ask me? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. He's talking about the cross. Uh, the hour is coming when they're going to take me away and hang me on a cross and, and I'll depart. And, and you'll weep and lament, but the world will dance on my grave. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. In other words, the thing that causes sorrow, the cross, is, will be the thing that, that ultimately creates joy. And notice he doesn't say your circumstances will get any better. He says the terrible thing that will happen in the future is going to produce joy in the midst of, of adverse circumstances. And then he illustrates from, from life again. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she goes birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. We all know that experience. The child that produces so much pain in childbirth is the child that produces so much joy. The very thing that causes joy creates, or causes pain creates joy. And Jesus says the thing that will hurt so much, the cross and my departure, is the thing that will produce a greater joy. Therefore, he says in verse 22, you too now have sorrow. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. In other words, the, the cross is going to produce some new relationship with Christ that they've never had before. He says, I'll see you again. I'll be taken away from you and, and you'll lament and the world will rejoice. But the tables will be turned and you will see me in some way that the world doesn't see me. And I'll come again. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to go back a couple of chapters to John 14. Because he had already explained to them what he meant. Chapter 14 describes two comings. In 14.3, he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself. Describes heaven like a great house and uh, the Father is there and many rooms and and he said, death is, in effect, like going to Jesus' house to sleep over, except you just stay there forever. And uh, I'm there. That's the fundamental revelation of, of heaven in the New Testament. Jesus is there. And that's what makes, uh, makes eternal life uh, something to, to be anticipated with joy. It's not just eternal existence. It's eternal life forever with Jesus. So he says, well, what, what's, the, what's the worst thing that could happen to you in the future? Well, it could kill you. He says, well, it's no big thing. Because you'll just go to the Father's house. And I'll be there. That's true whether he comes back for us at his second coming or we die. And, and that's still his coming. He's going to come and take us back to his house. So that takes care of the hereafter, life after death. But what about the intervening time? The time between now and, and my death? That can be just, just as grim. Well, in verse 12, Jesus tells us of another coming. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. He says, during these intervening years, while you await my return or your death, you'll do greater things than I did. That is staggering to contemplate. We have to take that seriously, though we don't fully understand it. I think he's talking about greater in extent. The, the apostles had a greater impact upon, upon society than Jesus ever did. Jesus uh, taught thousands, and at the end, very few were with him. On the day of Pentecost, Paul, or Peter preached, and thousands came to Christ. Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, and as far as I know, no one responded. Billy Graham tells the story of the Good Samaritan all the time, and hundreds come to Christ. That, that, that promise has been fulfilled over and over again. Jesus says, despite the hardness of these days, you are going to have a greater impact upon the world than I ever had. Why? It's because I'm going to the Father. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I'm, I'm going to finish the work that he sent me to do, and I'm going to go back to the Father, and I'm going to ask him. And he says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You see what Jesus is saying? You're going to do greater works than I did. You're going to sustain a greater impact upon your times than I ever did. And the reason you will is because when I get back to the Father, I'm going to ask for the Helper, and He's going to come, and He's going to have a different kind of ministry than I had. I was with you for three and a half years. He will be in you forever. But that's not all of the story, he says in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So who is the Holy Spirit? It's our Lord Jesus himself who comes to live within us, to indwell us, to form a new humanity, a new incarnation. Christ indwelling our bodies and our personalities. After a little while, he says, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. You, you will behold me in this special sense in that you will understand that I have come to indwell you and you will live just as I live. Because I live, you will live. In that day, you shall know that I am in the Father. Uh, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You see what he's saying? The Holy Spirit is not some uh, vague uh, kind of vapor that, that causes strange things to happen in worship services, people to uh, make ecstatic utterances or uh, necessarily healings or raising of the dead or those sorts of things. Certainly they occurred in the New Testament era as a result of, of the ministry of the Spirit. But the greater ministry of the Spirit is to indwell our humanity, and to make it possible for us to display the invisible Christ to the world around us. So not only does the Holy Spirit convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and reveal to the church the mind of God, but he sanctifies his own. He indwells us so he can change our lives because he's here. 
all the time, 24 hours a day. You're never away. Have you ever wished you'd lived back in the first century with Jesus and the apostles and you'd had a chance to see him and touch him and hug him and talk to him and walk with him? We're inclined to think that those people had, a, had an edge on us. They had a better thing going because they had him right there. They could ask him anything. But you realize what happened when the Lord wasn't there? When he, For example, when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he left the disciples down before, they just, down below, they just botched everything up. When he wasn't there, they were in trouble. Now Jesus says there is something new coming. I will be present with you always, at all times. I'll never abandon you. Suppose the Lord were limited today in time and space and living in Palestine. How in the world would you get to him? It would be worse than trying to arrange an audience with the Pope. All the telephone lines would be jammed. There would be lines miles long to talk to him. You wouldn't have a chance to see him. We have it far better. We have him right here in this room, in our hearts, available to us 24 hours a day. That's what makes the, Christ, the Christian life significant. Christianity is not a matter of reading the Bible and, and learning some rules to do and then going out and trying to do it. It's realizing that we have within us the life of our Lord Jesus and he's adequate to live again the life that he lived before. We can choose righteousness and we can do it because of his power. We can live lives of poise and, and, and peacefulness and power, tolerance and love and grace and beauty and winsomeness because he's here. He's here. Not over there. Not up there. Right here. As Paul puts it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, what, what do you have to face today? What, what difficult circumstance is in your life? The Lord never promises that he'll take it away. But he does promise that your joy will be full. He'll give you a joy that cannot be taken away from you. Because you have resident in your humanity the risen life, the infinite life of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. What a, what a marvelous thing it is, Father, to contemplate this truth. One that we so easily forget. That the God of the universe indwells us. With all of his, his resources available to us. And therefore, Father, we are sufficient for anything. We thank you for this great revelation of truth. May we believe it and live on it. And go from this place to live out today in our community the, the life of our risen Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.